What's up and welcome to another episode of Black in the Maritimes. I'm Fidel. I'm Hillary. And I'm Clinton. And we have a very special guest today. We have, uh, I like the Instagram that says uh, Soulpreneur, which is kind of cool. Uh, she is a entrepreneur, poet, artist. Uh, you could call her many things, but she goes by the name of Rare. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So we were like a little bit behind the scenes. We, we, we did notice that you're a very colorful person. So for people that are watching video, you will see your art. Like, the, where did you get that art in the background? Um, just online, maybe AliExpress. Not sure, but I have like a variety for when I do um, workshops for children. So I like to keep it colorful, definitely for them. Oh, so that's amazing. So, uh, but first thing of all, before we start, uh, where did you come with the name Rare? Um, there's a bit of a story time behind that. So the short form is because I'm very creative. So it would be rare for one of a kind. So divine and hard to find goddess. Um, but also, I'm also called Rare because I had a near-death experience that had me see life in a different perspective, and then I was kind of rebirthed, and that's the Rare component. All right, so we're definitely going to go on to that. So uh, let's talk about you. Like, where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in a marginalized community in central Etobicoke. Um, I've seen a lot of uh, interesting situations growing up, um, and I'm trying to break the stigma around um, social issues, around being a Black woman in communities like this, and just trying to not be a product of my environment. So have you ever been to the Maritimes at all? No. You never been to okay, so definitely we, Hillary, we need to get that. We we kind of need to get that ongoing. So I'm on it. Yeah. So uh, okay. So except for Clinton that grew up in Toronto uh, and Hillary that lives in Toronto, I I live in Moncton, New Brunswick. Uh, so those Clinton. So walk us down. How is Etobicoke? Uh, like, tell us what's Etobicoke and and how's the the atmosphere there. Um, I'd say the part of Etobicoke where I live, since it's central, it's like the downtown side of Etobicoke. And then there's like different components, just like how there's um, downtown Toronto and there's a like Kensington Market. Um, my central Etobicoke is more so um, That'd be like, like a suburb. Stuff like that? Or, or Sorry? Would that, would that be like down on the Queensway and stuff like that? or Yeah, like closer to the Queensway where there's a lot of families, a lot of old folks, um, a lot of construction right now. <laughs> you grew up there your whole life? Yes, I did. So I'm, I'm pretty familiar and comfortable with the area. And a lot of people just see me around. Oh, wow. So you're like, you're born and raised there. So everybody knows you. You know everybody. So welcome yeah. back to like your childhood in Tobicoke. How was that? How was that like? Um, well, I actually had a pretty legendary childhood, I would say, because we didn't have much. Um, so growing up, my mom worked in a factory providing for us. She has um, three daughters and then a fourth one came later on. Um, so I was kind of just chilling with my sisters growing up and some of them, sometimes they didn't want to play with me. So I was like, okay, I'm going outside. And I would find the most interesting things to do outside, whether it's like biking, swimming. And when we're swimming, we're playing games like colors. If you don't know, that's a really classic game that you play in the pool. It's like Marco Polo, but even better. Um, we're outside playing manhunt, um, cards, like 
all the good stuff that you some folks know growing up. Um, I feel bad for this, these new millennials who don't know about Duck Duck Goose and potato sack races and the egg races and all of that good stuff. Um, but yeah, my childhood was very interesting. Um, yeah, I have no brothers. So a lot of female energy in my household and, uh, missing items sometimes for my other sisters taking them, but that's a whole nother story. Well, that, well, and well, I was going to tell you two things now kids know because it's squid game. Now oh. they know what we play, but people die in this thing now. <laughs> so I'll <laughs> say that. Uh, and yeah, I think, I think I agree with you with that sense that uh, a lot of kids don't play what we, and, and I guess I think that's kind of lucky that you were able to do that, that you were able to play outside and do stuff because a lot of kids don't do that as much as we used to, because again, there's this, this thing called the internet, which we do a podcast on it. So uh, it's way more uh, accessible than what we used to have back in the day. So that that's pretty cool that you said that you were in a very uh, female-led environment. So you had a single mother, four sisters. Uh, what would you say that was the best thing about being female-led? Like, I would say like we all just were able to be comfortable in our household. Um, we share clothes sometimes. We're like, oh, can I borrow that? Sometimes there's not even the borrowing aspect. It's like, where did my jacket go? But yes, um, I like the fact that everyone's cooking. We're always cooking and there's always food. So we never have to worry about that. Um, and yeah, like, I feel like we all just communicated with each other a lot more. We had like group conversations. We're watching America's Next Top Model all the time. Drag race. Like we had amazing race. Like we had our shows where we just sat there. Oh, especially girlfriends. It's like my girlfriends. But yeah. Which, which is kind of, you know what? I am originally from the Dominican Republic. I had a lot of access to the United States and things like that. And you're talking about girlfriend, RuPaul's Drag Race and stuff like that. I just found out about RuPaul's Drag Race like two years ago. And now I'm addicted to the goddamn thing because it's so funny, uh, especially when the Canada's Drag Race thing came. But uh, in Atlantic Canada, and because there's not a lot of black television like even there's i think there's bet in certain packages but there's not a whole lot of uh black people unless you see them from the states uh but there's not not a lot of that that people are are exposed to other than the mainstream like fresh friends and stuff like that because they were huge things uh girlfriends was kind of huge but it was a lot of it was a black community kind of thing uh mm -hmm. but ha having that said you grew up in toronto where there's a lot of diversity there like right like you you were exposed to those things so i'm assuming that school was like uh again toronto kind of prides itself on being like a melting pot right that's that's the the catchphrase so i'm assuming that the high school was that experience as well or school is in general um kind of because the part i live in in central tobacco is actually primarily I would say like primarily like European, white, Italian, to mix like that. Um, my primary school was very um, white oriented. So I was the um, the golden egg or the golden goose, to the token within um, the school growing up. So primary school, I was a token. A lot of the time, like I couldn't find a friend's group. I would just like click to the other black person that I could find within the area. Um, and then... Um, Middle school, it was the same scenario. Um, and then I got, like, my first, like, actual, like, good, 
like best friend I'd say and she actually came from the same community as me so like my townhouse is here and then her town townhouse is over there and then we always just went to school together and yeah that was my one good friend that I had from middle school to high school and she was African so I learned a lot about African culture with her and since I didn't have a lot of black friends growing up it was nice to understand other black issues and like talk about that with her and that you know that's kind of interesting that you were in this big city this is the biggest city in Canada like you you, you're in a a suburb of this big city and you come to the realization that you grew up in a school that there's not a lot of black people when usually that's the catchphrase of the whole thing right like if you if you're in in the big city like Toronto it's like oh it's diverse there's a lot of people uh Vancouver has the same catchphrase but I mean Clinton you have something to say because you lived there your whole life as well yeah, I do. I mean, I, I always talk about how diverse my school happened to be in the neighborhood I grew up in. But uh, Rare points out something very true is that Toronto is super diverse, but it's also super big. So there is communities where you have a huge dominant population of a, of a certain culture. And then there's other parts of the city that it, it is more of a melting pot where it's like super mixed in and stuff like that. So I thought you were going to say, Rare, that it was like an all black community because of like, like I'm think I, I guess I was thinking like West Mall and Etobicoke and other places like that. But but yeah, so it just it makes sense that um, your school could be all white in Toronto. It's it's not because Toronto's huge. So depending on that, you happen to live in a community like that. That is that's really interesting. Yes, exactly. There there were schools like that. Like I know the schools that you're talking about. My mom did put us in those ones. She was like, I want you to have an amazing future. So I'm gonna put you in these ones. But the good thing about the schools I did go to is um, they were so well-funded that I was able to learn ridiculous skills. So within um, primary school, I learned about how millworms create um, soil, how they um, incorporate within the soil. We um, got to take home butterflies, caterpillars and see them morph into butterflies. Like they gave us a caterpillar. Um, I learned quilting. I learned, mm, Oh, book binding and book publishing in primary school. And then when I hit middle school, I was able to learn um, woodshop, viola, uh, a bunch of instruments. Like because those schools were so well funded and within those communities, I was able to advance myself at a very young age. So it has its pros and cons. Like my blackness was like kind of lowering, but my skill set was getting up there. But as soon as I hit high school, that's when the melting pot of diversity came in because I went to multiple different high schools until I did graduate. So, yeah. And that's kind of cool. Like, I mean, and and not cool at the same time, because I've been uh, some reports based on uh, things in Toronto is that places like Scarborough, which there's a predominant black community, uh, the schools are underfunded. Uh, they're underfunded, mm-hmm. underdeveloped. And compared to white neighborhoods, the schools are more developed, they're more funded, they're more so. So definitely your mom was right on the money. Uh, so she kind of understood how the things work. And I'm assuming she was born and raised in Toronto as well. So she kind of knew the system. Oh, no, my mom's from the Caribbean. Oh, what part? Uh, she's Grenadian. Oh, wow. So, yeah, that's a nice island, though. There's a yes. lovely beaches there. So, but OK, so even like so at least your mom kind of knew what what she was looking for. So she tried to get you the best education. And and that's right. So what were you into in school? Like, what was the the main thing that attracted you that, you know, how did you find yourself in the school system? The funny thing is, I did it. 
<laughs> I had no idea what I wanted to do from primary school to middle school. I didn't really understand who I really was growing up, which was an issue as soon as I hit high school when they're like, okay, what are you going to college for? And what do you want to do when you're done school? And I had no idea. And I was like, um, I had to basically take a year off, but within that year off, I had a lot of self-discovery and things like that. But when I was in high school, I was like, wow, there's so many options. I was just overwhelmed. And, um, before, as I said, I, I went to multiple, um, high schools when I actually hit my, um, my, I went to an adult school to graduate, to upgrade my credit so I could go to college. And while I was there, I was able to learn woodshop was just something I was curious about. Um, gardening, I tried that. I was like, that's not for me either. Tried hair, I was like, mm, that's not it. Um, but then there was a guidance counselor there who actually opened the door for me into studio production, which is live broadcasting. So I learned about um, how CP24 does their shows and we actually got to go there and do a tour. And that opened my mind to media. Being a young Black woman from the projects in Toronto, I'm like, wow, I'd never get access to this ever. I would have never like seen or known about how these things are produced or anything within media if this guidance counselor didn't like create that pathway for me. So from that opportunity, I was able to like dive into this skill and I found passion in it because I've always been into photography. Um, I've been my family photographer. Um, I did a bunch of bake sales when I was younger. I've always been on so I've been an entrepreneur, but then transitioned into a solopreneur after um, high school. But growing up, I was always interested in it, but I never really took in that I was an entrepreneur growing up. I did bake sales. I did um, newspaper. I did snow shoveling. I walked your dog. Whatever it was, I was doing it. I sold my old clothes. I sold all types of stuff. Good stuff only. But yes. <laughs> wow, that, that's pretty cool. And and that's a funny thing that what you said, because I'm reading a book by uh, a woman called Ur Ursula Burns. Uh, she's the first black CEO of a Fortune 500 company. She's the first women black CEO uh, of Xerox. And uh, she in her book, she says that, you know, because uh, she got an opportunity of a program, so such as got a, gui a guidance counselor. Uh, she was able to go to electrical engineering. She was able to go to this Catholic school and she was able to get education. And she says that uh, people of colors in, in diverse neighborhoods or underfunded neighborhoods should have access to like guidance counselors and things like that. Because again, you, you were able to kind of watch like media and stuff and you fell in love with it and, and you became doing all of these things. So basically, you know, I think that's a very important that if you have a, you know, if somebody's listening that has a kid that's mixed race or uh, color kid, black, Asian, whatever, uh, try to get them to a guidance counselor. Like kids need guidance because they don't know any better. Uh, that's definitely something that I, I definitely I mean, I took for granted a whole lot. And, and I'm learning that that's very important. Go ahead, Hillary. I'd just like to comment on that because I don't know if this is an East Coast thing, but we always saw guidance counselors when I was in high school as unhelpful. It was very much like if you went to the guidance counselor, it was because you were the kid smoking who needed to be stopped. You had started experimenting with drugs and needed to be stopped. Um, you like, I went because of like my own self-esteem stuff. Like if you were being bullied, it wasn't so much like you're, you have potential and need to be set on a path so much as you've already started to go down a negative path and they're course correcting you. And I always felt at my 
predominantly white school that like they came with a stigma of you don't want to be sent to the guidance counselor. That means you have trouble at home. That means that you have bad grades. Like you have a reputation already once you're going there, which I find really interesting, especially in our like recent conversations about, um, racism and bullying in the schools in New Brunswick, because the teacher that I interviewed for a thing with CBC has transitioned to becoming the guidance counselor at my high school. And I think she's a perfect fit for that role because of how she was trying to help me. But I, we all know I wasn't like troubled. I was just like, you know, having issues at home that she noticed, but it wouldn't have been reflected in my grades. But I, I just find that very interesting. I think that there's an issue with that in schools um, yeah, or I- how, how the kids see it. And I think there, there, there has to be it. And I mean, I think the same thing I would say with everything in life. Uh, I think the only thing that is secure in life is death, which is kind of tragic. Uh, but uh, having that said, somebody told me like, uh, life is like uh, buying a car. And I'm like, what do you mean? You don't go for the first option. You always have to keep looking for different options in cars. So like the first one that you get, uh, your first guidance counselor, your first teacher, first therapist, like that's why you kind of keep rolling to see how do you improve to get better. Uh, but again, I think at the at the end of the day, I think, yeah, kids need guidance. And also, like you said, I think there, there needs to be a, a further discussion around that. But I, I as much as I, I never care for that as in my life, but now that I'm reading and, I, and I'm hearing people like you uh, and I'm hearing other people saying like, OK, if it wasn't for this, 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 this doesn't have happened. Uh, not necessarily a guidance counselor, maybe your mother, for me, was my mother. My mother was the one that now, now that I see that I'm an adult, she could, I connected the dots of how I went, how the path that I got here. Uh, but again, I think everybody needs some type of guidance and that's how the dots connect. But uh, you, we see that you got into media. So when you get out of school, is that the first thing you go to? You go to like study a media course or things like that? Oh, um, similar. I actually... After that course, I was kind of just settling in and seeing, like, do I really want to study media in college? Um, The course that I ended up taking was called the dual credit. So it was a program where I was still getting my high school credit, but also getting a college credit and being sent to a college once a week during my high school upgrading. So it was like a two in one win um, that I didn't know about. And my guest counselor has had referred me to it because she knew that I was just trying to finish high school at least. Um, even if I didn't know what I wanted to do after that. Um, and I guess she thought like, hmm, maybe if you pick one of these things, um, it would help you create that avenue. But the funniest thing is I thought studio production was like beats, mix and mastering. I didn't actually read the description when I picked the chorus. I just want to surprise myself. And I was like, okay, let's see what this is popped up. And I was like, wow, live broadcast. Oh, and then it ended up being amazing. So after that experience, while I was just waiting and kind of reflecting on the experience, um, I got an ad on Instagram, basically, and there's this uh, youth-led nonprofit organization called the Film Star Project. Um, they teach marginalized youth the steps and skills of filmmaking. And I was like, okay, this seems like it's kind of made for me. I guess it, um, the algorithm heard my wishes and <laughs> brought the opportunity my way. And I just messaged the account. I'm like, hey, um, are you guys located in Toronto? And like, how can I get involved? I was just curious. And they're like, oh yeah. Um, we have an opportunity available. Meet us at this location. And uh, me being a curious cat that I am, I was like, sure. And I popped up over there and realized I was in a, um, like, 
a film education facility, basically. It's called Lifts. Um, and it's basically like industry professionals in the film industry that teaches you all of the steps and skills of filmmaking. And I got to learn from all of these folks, got to connect with them on LinkedIn or for feature reference or just ask them more questions. And now I have these skills in um, directing, lighting, uh, script writing, editing, um, storyboarding, like a variety. And from there, I'm like, whew, film is a lot. But it's very interesting. Maybe it could be something I do in my spare time as like passion projects. It's like my current state of mind now that I have these skills in this education. So film is a passion. Photography is a passion. But what I have my heart actually focused on now is being an author and a social service worker. Because that guidance counselor was so impactful on me, in my younger days, I'm like, okay, I could definitely help people just like her one day and just uh, collect resources, learn more about how I can actually help people by going to college and then also actually engaging within Toronto's community of social services. So going to certain community centers, like almost all of them and like going there and seeing like, oh, what's this like? And things like that. So currently I'm just doing a lot of research so I could be an amazing worker. Well, it seems like you, you're doing quite a lot. It, it seems like you're you're trying to do quite a lot. So, and and again, I think you had the education and you had like the guidance to to definitely get there. So, you learn all these things and you're putting it forward. Like, when does the social like like the social working part comes into your life? Like, is it because the guidance counselor? And you said it, but when does it like? When do you did you go like I want to do this or like does do you stumble upon it? Hmm. Like, what made me want to be a social worker? Yeah. Um, because I come from a marginalized community, I've, I've seen, like, people, like, die from gun violence. Um, I've been to funerals. Um, there's people here that are, like, struggling financially. Um, their children are suffering because of it. Um, food security. Um, like, there's just so many issues within communities that I feel like if these barriers were to go down or if there was um, proper community centers in certain areas or actual workers connecting people to resources they don't know about, then it could actually help uplift or at least save some of these children from going down the wrong paths. Um, there's drug dealers, there's, there's all types of stuff going on in local communities. And I just see it happening and like, I'm just like, uh, if I can at least help in some type of way to make things better than I would like to. Um, I just feel like it's just part of my purpose of being rebirthed and like being here on Earth. So, so we're going to come with that rebirth in part in a, in a minute. Now, I, I do have something to kind of add, and maybe Clinton can add that because Clinton lived there uh, most most of his life. Like a lot of people, when they think about Canada, and this is Canada as a whole in Toronto, they don't think about hood and gun violence like in the States. One, because we don't have those same laws. Uh, handguns are illegal here. They're highly illegal, but they can still get transferred because of our neighbors in the States. They get transferred like it's nobody's business. Uh, there's a lot of gun violence, gang violence and stuff like that. Uh, and again, people in places like here and in other places, they get shocked that that happens in places like Toronto. And it happens to a lot of black people and, and people of color. Uh, so walk us through that. Like you said, you, you've seen people getting shot. You've seen people get like, how is the how does that affect the communities? And why do you think it happens in places like Toronto when people again, people are shocked? We're not shocked because we know it. 
and Clinton maybe add to this because Clinton has lived there. I haven't lived there, so I can definitely not uh, attire to the experience. But like, what happens when somebody sees that? And why do you think people uh, in those neighborhoods, when the place that they say they have free healthcare and we have like programs and we have all of this stuff that we know there's a problem, but a lot of people are not aware that that is a problem that exists in places like that. Mm, okay. So would you say you're asking where does this stem from? Well, from your point of view, because I know you don't have like, the, the, it's a bigger problem, but like your point of view, where, what do you think it stems from? So I believe it's because um, the price of living is going up and it's becoming harder to survive in general. So when it comes down to robbery, gun violence, drug abuse, or selling drugs and everything. People are literally just trying to survive. If there's a lack of jobs, what are they going to do? You could, they, could, they can try to go get a job. They can try to get interviews, and sometimes they're still struggling. Um, there's points where young boys or young children in general are falling victims to um, older folks and they're like being preyed upon to be like, Oh, you don't have any, anything to do. Oh, just go drop this for me. They're not even asking what's in it or anything like that. And then they're getting caught up into fast money. They start seeing, um, these older guys with nice cars. They're like, Oh, I want to be like that. And they're like, Oh yeah, you can, you just got to do this for me. And like, I just find that people are, trying their best to be honest people are really just trying their best and with the lack of assistance um they don't even have a lot of options i kind of uh, went off with the question because i'm thinking of like a whole lot of story times in my head but those would be like super long but yeah I mean, I think I think yeah. I think you're I think you're absolutely right. I definitely think that, that that's part of the problem, Clinton. What you've lived there yourself, like what what do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think regardless of all the perks of Canada and you know free healthcare and free education and stuff like that, uh, I mean, you even have people out in New Brunswick that are horribly poor for it. But in a place like Toronto, and I'll start off by saying, you know, I grew up in what I would call like a lower middle income, like lower middle class neighborhood. And then right on like both directions from my house were a couple of the projects where a lot of my, my best friends who went to school lived. And I, you know, I'd be at their houses often for sleepovers and hang, hanging out. And even in my later years, different living in different areas, uh, I was exposed to, you know, gun violence a number of times and a, a lot of other crazy stuff like being eight years old and walking to my friend's like apartment house and then you just see blood smeared on the wall, like the one all the way up the stairs. And that was just one of the first things I saw when I was like six or seven. But um, I think it's because when, when you put, look, black people are in Toronto, um, one of the, like, and I, I will say regarding violence, you know, it's probably a small percentage of the 10% of Toronto that is black. It's not, I don't, I wouldn't say it's violence, like ridden the streets 24 seven, like crazy. And I haven't been there in 10 years where you could answer that. But I think just when you put people in boxes and you don't, you know, you don't give them the same chances, you let them go to the schools, but you don't give them the same chances at education. The teachers give up on them, them sooner. You face racism, you face trauma, you're in a city, but you don't feel accepted. Um, and it's been like that for years. I mean, it's harder to get jobs. It's really, it's hard for anyone to get jobs, but it's, it was really hard for black people to get jobs. Um, just like when a name on a resume or you screen a person, once you know it's, you're in the land of opportunity, Canada, but you know, people aren't treated the same. These projects, like they're, 
you don't even see them a lot. And Scarborough is not mostly black. Scarborough is a weird combination of like ghetto condo, ghetto condo. Would would you say where is it? Is it still like that? Yeah. Uh, I so agree. Um, <laughs> last thing, last thing I'll say is that um, yeah, these projects are hidden. Like they're really like it's like one road in, and then there's taller like other nicer buildings around. A hundred percent. Like right beside the projects where I am, there's like mansions across the street. That's but how the it's good laid thing out. is, it's weird. Yeah. In Go Halloween, ahead. we get all the goodies. <laughs> <laughs> um no they actually give out like boxes of pizza they have barbecue chicken on rotisserie like this halloween like they went in i was like that's how you're feeling yeah there's some crazy houses like saga etobicoke area down like down there on the other side of like ontario a bit Um, yeah like growing up i actually had a friend uh where his mom was the woman who designed the highways like the improvements of the highways so like he grew up with everything but as he got older um, he was gifted like a Lamborghini for his birthday and he actually decided to trade it in, save his money and ride the bus. I, I'm oh, not sure like the reasoning guy. behind this, Yeah, but maybe they just want a normal life, but for some time, privilege ain't that pretty, I That's guess. Interesting. Yeah. To answer your question, Fidel, I would say like that is the thing. Like, yeah, it's Canada, but it's Toronto and it's, it's a lot of different things. Like Toronto is like a lot of different things and it's gigantic. But just because you're black in a big city in Canada, yeah. You just, some it's people shine equal. through. Some people get those special opportunities. Some people get these opportunities knocking on their door. And th- those are the f- far and few that get out of these circumstances and situations. And then that's the one black family that lives on that neighborhood. And then so people can be like, see, black people are equal. They made it. They, they did good too. But you don't see like the 90% of the other people living in these projects that are struggling. Yeah, um, that- I just wanted to add to the conversation too. Um, like just from a, like a healthcare perspective, now that I work in community health, that um, it's like, I'm noticing that like, it's just a big correlation because it's barriers upon barriers upon barriers. Like these black people who don't necessarily have job opportunities, who are resorting to gun violence to maybe get money or it, a lot of it still stems from like trauma and addiction and we might have free healthcare, but dental care ain't free. Therapy is not free. Psychotherapy is not free. Like trauma recovery isn't free. And so these community health centers that I work in, they're built to alleviate that, but then they're, they're not funded enough to help everybody. COVID adds to that situation. Some of these people are homeless living on the streets need to use safe supply, like to, to be able to use drugs just to be able to function on a daily basis. And so I would say that Canada might seem like a wonderful place, but there are a lot of barriers stacked against people. And once you already have racialization putting you down and a lack of finances, those things add up to you being part of that community. And it's, it's really hard to get out of poverty. was hard to get out of when I was living in new Brunswick, the system was built so that you were making just enough money to survive and never enough money to get yourself out of poverty, to be a clean, presentable human being who could get a job, could, who could afford a printer to get a resume. I only got out because I won that scholarship. Like the low rentals were a scary place in New Brunswick. I can't imagine Toronto where it's like here. I can't imagine being in the system here where it's so many things against you. It's so big and there's so many opportunities, but there's opportunities for the for the right people who have the money to pay the rent or can be the landlords like (laughs) gouging people out of their homes and gentrifying this place so many smart black people living in all these communities Uh, and it's just 
Sorry. It's for facts, like <laughs> super intelligent, but it's, it doesn't, like, if you don't get given that special shot or that special yeah. opportunity, you're going to stay where you are. Yeah. Um, Survival of the fittest out here for black folks and it's dangerous. Like this is what turns black people against black people. It's like, Oh, how can you get to get like yeah. that? How can you don't get that? And then this is where violence comes into hand. It's like, Oh, you gave him a bag, but where's my bag? Jealousy, envy, Mm. Well, Toronto mm-hmm. screw face capital anyway. No, <laughs> it's, it's a crab in a bucket situation, yeah. especially in the projects. They're like, yeah, we want to see you win, but not better than me, though. And I think yeah. that's that's the big issue there. Like what you said that, uh, you know, there is this line of poverty. And because you're in poverty, your children have a higher chance of being in poverty. And then you get generations of poverty. And that's super scary. And right now I don't have no kids. I'm like vowing. I will not bring my kid back into the project where I came from. That is not an option. We're going to build, we're going to go and we're going to build elsewhere. Yeah, I'm going to have to come over there or something, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And and I think that's the thing. Like, like you get all these generations of poverty and, and then once somebody comes out and again, I, I I'm referring to this Ursula Burns book, like she got out to a college in the seventies and she was like a smart kid. She worked hard, but because she was the only black woman, it's like, Oh, you're so smart. Oh, you're so you're exceptional. Oh, you're intelligent. And she's like every black kid, any black woman, any black man could be intelligent. They just don't get the opportunity as a white counterpart. That's just the, the reality. And then when the white, but the white counterpart doesn't, realize that or one acknowledges that that they're like oh wait i got better funding better schooling better everything so i got better chances but if the same person just just happens to be a color gets that they will excel as well but they don't they think it's like oh no they have to be exceptional right like and that's not necessarily that's not the case at all every black person uh, has the capability to do it as long as they have the resources which resources is, is the main thing that people do need in in these impoverished neighborhoods because again poverty nobody escapes poverty but the problem is is that there's a system that can keep you in poverty, which is the mm-hmm. bad thing, like that, that can keep you in there. And, and that is the, the, the bad thing on, on big cities. So go, going back to that, we, we, we talked a lot about this rebirth that you've been saying that you kind of got reborn. And, and that's how we kind of got into you. Hillary introduced you to us and, and she kind of told your story. Uh, walk us through that experience. What, what exactly happened? So you can say as much as you want without like traumatizing yourself as someone who knows a lot of the story, whatever you're comfortable (laughs) sharing. Okay. Uh, We just, um... all right. So I'm trying to like shorten the story because it's long. Um, Whatever you feel like, no worries. Long. Okay. Let's see. All right. Six years ago from today, I had a near death experience where I was in a, uh, a car accident that turned into a domestic violence situation. But the car accident itself was where the rebirth had happened. It was a windy, cold night in January, I believe. And um, it was like snowing, hailing, freezing. Um, and I had, well, just fast forward to, okay, so windy, cold night and all that jazz. And I am in silky pink pajamas. I did not intend on leaving my house, but I ended up trying to speak to my ex-partner at the time. And they were trying to talk it out and telling me they had an emergency and things like that. I was like, oh my gosh, me being a big hearted citizen. I was like, yes, I can help you. Even though maybe I shouldn't have. I got in the car and 
that car swerved on the highway and then there was some arguments and I said, I don't want to be in this car. I'd rather walk on the highway than be over here. And they're drunk driving, which I realized while on the highway and we were swerving at max speed and it was very scary. Um, they end up saying, oh yeah, I'll pull off over here. Pulling off into a back alleyway, um, speeding and not watching where they're driving. They um, put their head down on the steering wheel, pressed the gas and said, uh, I can't live without you. And then um, the car slid on black ice, spinning like a roller coaster clockwise and counterclockwise, hitting fire, fire hydrants and mailboxes and a whole bunch of chaos. Um, I am not a fan of roller coasters, fast moving anything and any of that. So I was having a panic attack at that moment, um, heart attack, everything all at the same time. I was screaming heavily. And, um, as the car is spinning like crazy, it's about to hit, um, it like on the black ice, raining, hailing. It looks like the car is about to hit a, um, giant light post, like those like cement ones, like gigantic tall ones. So on my side of the car, um, I'm basically seeing the light post like about to like break the glass and like wipe my head off my body. But within that split second, um, in my perspective, my soul had left my body and seen it happen. So imagine light light pole is coming towards you. I close my eyes, soul comes out. I see my death happen right there where the light post does split through the car, hit me, I die. But when my soul had left my body, I had seen this standing from outside. I closed my eyes and I took a deep breath and I see my life flash before my eyes within like a slide. Imagine like a white space with like a slideshow of like seeing my mom give birth to me, hold me for the first time, getting my bottle, riding a tricycle, blowing up my candles, um, dad leaving, mom coming, going to work. Like every single moment up until that age where I was, I think I was I don't know, like 18 or something. Everything had happened so fast. Um, I'm seeing like going to middle school, learning quilting, like everything that I mentioned earlier about my primary schools and high schools and everything. I'm literally seeing it. And in that last moment was the death experience at the end of the the show. And I, I was like, wow, my whole life that's for my eyes in the in my subconscious and my back thoughts. I'm like, damn, I did not accomplish anything. And I still don't know what I want to do for the rest of my life. So I'm there in that thought process. And at the end of, um, at the end of the white space and seeing the same last image of what has happened of my death, um, I end up the white space, the, sh the slideshow disappears and I'm just in front of the golden gates. And I just, I'm frightened at this point. So I get on my knees in this illusion and I'm just like, please, my mom needs me. My little sister needs me. Who's going to teach her what she needs to learn in this world who's gonna protect her. I didn't even, I didn't even, I'm not even done here. Like I didn't even do what I was supposed to do. Like, um, if you bring me back and give me the power, I swear I would live with purpose. And I felt the shock go through my body. I, in, like, I couldn't breathe for a second. Like I inhaled, I felt like I was choked. Like I was, I thought I was like dying at that moment. I was like choking. And then I like, I just felt the shock through my body. And next thing I knew I was, uh, no injuries, no, no broken bones, no anything, but I was back within the car. The car had stopped, um, where the light post is, but it was like, if, 
the car was going to continue rolling, I don't know how the car stopped, but if the car was going to continue rolling, then it would have went through a bungalow home and then we would have killed the family as well. But uh, that didn't happen. It stopped like on their lawn, like in front of their door. Um, and basically that's what I'm calling rare. Wow. So let's like, just to recap, it seems, and, and maybe Hillary has a lot of experience on this. It seems like you were in a toxic relationship. Would, would that be fair to say? Um, yeah, you can say that. Okay. So basically this happens because of uh, this type of, of relationship. And I, I mean, I'll, you just told it and I'm like, whoa, <laughs> this is like, I, I haven't experienced something like that. I would be scared of my life. I, and, you know, like almost losing, I, I was in, almost in an accident. I, I think it was the scariest thing ever, but I, nothing even compared to what you are. So I'm assuming. And then that, after the accident, I was like domestically violently hurt. Yeah. Because uh, drunk driving, thought that I destroyed the car when he was the one driving. Like it just got worse than that. But. I'm just happy to be able and beautiful and well and blessed. So, yeah. So, so basically in just to, you know, I don't, I don't want to touch too much about it because I think that this is kind of more in a personal matter. This was this the, cause we, well, I myself been in a toxic relationship. Hillary has been, I'm not, I think Clinton has as well. Uh, so these are not good relationships and there's a lot of, there, there's a lot of trauma related to that. Uh, and, what do you think? And again, I, I, the good thing is that you got out of it because you're here, right? You're here. You're, you're, you seem like you're going to a better phase in your life. Oh, I'm uh, way better now. I, I'm literally blessed. Like now I'm like, whoo, 10 times better. I'm like, I feel unstoppable. I think I'm superwoman, but. That, which is amazing. Uh, <laughs> but what, what made you think that got you into that relationship per se? Like, were you young? I'm assuming you were younger. You was this your first relationship, or were you gravitated to something that you may not have before? Like, what do you think it was? Um, it was like basically the relationship was like on and off for like three, four years. I just felt so connected to the person because we like been talking and been together for so long. I'm really not sure. I'm really not sure. I, I just I can, love love. <laughs> I can see where you and Hillary can connect. I can definitely see. I have a big heart. <laughs> Clinton, go ahead. So you had this. So you had like this out of body, near death experience where you where you you experienced being ripped from your body and witnessing everything, your whole life flashing by. And then you use the word you you say use the word you had an illusion of being on your knees and stuff like that. So I call it an illusion because sure some you, people aren't spiritual. Sure. So that, that's an interesting word to use because it, it gives the context that people can accept your story without having to believe necessarily that it was like you were that you were actually at the gates of heaven. So but it's I don't call it the gates of heaven. I just call it the universal passage. Gates. OK, sure. I thought you said gates. Sorry. Um, that's but wow, that's like not a lot of people get to experience things like that. And it sounds so mind blowing and no one would volunteer to experience it, but that must have really changed your entire outlook on everything in the universe. Um, where did you yes. feel you were a spiritual person before that? Or did you, did you focus on things like energy and being connected to like uh, oh, frequencies or, <laughs> you know, laws of attraction and like all the things that relate to sort of a, a sense of spirituality. Um, this, this, so this changed everything. 
Yes. So the whole experience, like after being in that accident and the domestic violence, I actually isolated myself for a whole year. I did not work. I did not leave my house. I didn't do anything. I literally just needed a whole healing self care year. Like I had, I wanted no part of anything. So within that isolation, I was able to kind of just like, I kept thinking about that experience over and over. And I was like, is this possible? Is this real? Like I did research on it. Like I dove into it. And when I realized it's a very spiritual, like when I started, when I felt comfortable enough to actually start telling people about it, they're like, it sounds like something spiritual. It sounds like this, something that I'm personally not religious, but I'm very spiritual. So when I started to look into it, I'm like, okay, um, what is spirituality? What's law of attraction? I watched the secret, which you can find on Netflix. Like I started looking into all these uh, resources, the chakras, um, alignment. Um, and that's when I, I really thought like, this is different. And a lot of people might not understand, but the only way I could is by using the words of law of attraction and spirituality. And now I actually use law of attraction and um, to kind of bring me the things I aspire for in life um, through affirmations, through journaling, through um, vision boards and things like that. So yeah, spirituality was is major to me now. And I hold it so dearly to my heart where like I wear um, necklaces where gems represent certain significance. I have like a little, a little mini shrine with like Buddha on it. So I'm still kind of exploring the different aspects of spirituality, but I definitely um, understand it a whole lot more. And it's, it plays a huge part in my current life and my future goals and everything that I've built up until now. And you like you you said so your 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 summary of your life was that you felt you hadn't done much. Yeah. Um, and you know, we never know <laughs> when we're gonna go, and we all have a limited amount of Sunday evenings and <laughs> Wednesdays and minutes and hours and days. So this kind of kicked uh, a motivation and an inspiration in you that hasn't you know, hasn't dwindled ever since, right? It was such a powerful experience. What's yeah, that like? so uh... At this point, I schedule all my time after I realize, oh, damn, I've been wasting my time for so long at the spiritual awakening. I specifically call it an awakening. I woke up my real self, my inner self. So I like to say like Natalie lives in my subconscious now and rare is like the person you see here because I was actually a whole different person before that. I was really introverted. Um, I had two friends. Um, I was untalented, didn't care to learn skills very reckless. Um, I wasn't even doing anything actually in life. I was literally just chilling. But after this, um, I started to dive into more resources after the film star project. I looked into other projects, community engagement, um, talked to my, um, guidance counselor. I went back to that school and actually ended up guest speaking for them, ended up running workshops. Um, and now I'm just telling my story as I go on, but I scheduled my time weekly, monthly, important dates, needs and wants. Like I break it all the way down. So I'm like, if I want to get out of the projects, we going to strategically plan to get out of here. So, yeah. You know what the funny thing is, is that the most valuable thing in life, and some people might understand they're not, it's time. You can get everything back, money, houses, relationships, mm -hmm. but you can't get time back. Nope. Not any money in the world will get you. So time is it's, it's such a precious resource that people take it for granted because we're here. 
but they don't understand how valuable it is because you you can't get it back. <laughs> like you, whatever 100%. happened before, you, you just can't get it back. And that's kind of cool that you're scheduling your time because you really value it. So uh, thank you for valuing the time to being with us, which I, I definitely have to take that. because I Thank you. Thank you. No problem. So what, what is the future for Rare? Because if you don't know, you, we didn't mention your name at all. You said your name, which uh, you said Natalie, uh, which we didn't mention it. So you go by this name and, and, and this, is, this seems like this is your future, your future of this name. So what do you think is the, is the future for Rare? Um, like me, Rare, or like my projects? Whatever you think it is, either or, doesn't matter. Um, I will say I did want to ask you about the the book and the merch. So if you want to tie all of that into this one question, because I know what projects you've got going on right now. And we don't, okay. so we, we, need, we need her to tell us because we <laughs> Okay. So um, taking off of the whole experience of my life and the story and my lack of accomplishments before, um, I actually started writing down a list of projects that I will accomplish within the next five years. And one of them was a poetry and photography book um, through middle school and high school, how I coped with my mental health and being um, an outcast and not having friends and things back in the day was writing poetry for myself, but I never shared it with anybody. So I just had sticky notes on sticky notes all over my room and um, last year I applied for a grant during the Black Lives Matter movement and I got it and the project I um, wanted to produce was a book. So I ended up producing and self-publishing my first book, Rare's World. It is a project which highlights poetry from adolescence, high school till current age. It's photography from the soul, the mind, body, and soul, I like to say. And on the bind, it says words from the mind, body, and soul. So I literally put my all into this book as a project for the community, for the Black community specifically, because the Black Lives Matter movement was so impactful that it was able to fund this project. So I made sure the whole team was Black to produce this. My Uber drivers were Black. The food catering was Black. The pages are Black. My models were black, blackity, black, black, black. So I want to make sure I'm creating my intergenerational wealth for my people. Yes. yes. Yeah. So where, so, where do um, people go yes. get this book, though? So because I'm rare, I decided that this first book, because I poured my soul into it, there's limited copies and they're only sold in Toronto and Kenston market at the house of Moses. Um, I'm, I might come out with the audiobook version or a ebook with it, but the physical books for this first project are one of a kind and so divine. Um, I'm not sure if the house of Moses still has books, but maybe they do. If you check it out, if they don't, I will be coming out with more books. So within the process of creating this first book, um, I realized how I can improve. I'm also doing self-reflections. So for the next book, I decided to call it Rare's Growth, since this is Rare's World. So within the next year or so, I'm just studying poetry even more and photography, how I could advance myself, how I could create more flow and more storytelling within it. And the next book will actually have stories from my upbringing and poetry and photography. So it's a book of art. 
Well, that's pretty shout cool. out to House of Moses, by the way. That's that's a, that's a big thing in, in in Kensington Market. I remember mm-hmm. when uh, I remember when when Moses was like, uh, and he was he had a cart outside of where his store is right now. He was selling stuff from a cart every day, all day, uh, and then and now he has he has the business. He's right across the street from one of my old best friends in the market, Paris, who was a legend. Uh, oh gosh, you know he actually bought the building. He bought the building. Wow. He bought the See, building, the basement, been there like the upstairs. He owns it all. That's what I'm saying. He started from a cart then, like outside yeah. the building to, to lease it to now he owns the building. Mm-hmm. That's why I said shout out to House of Moses. Wow. Even better. They let me go down to House of Moses. Je- definitely check out House of Moses. That You can also find them online. I believe they're working on their online store, but they're amazing to go inside and just vibe with the people then. So yeah. alongside that, house of moses during the summertime i actually actually let me pull it back so because i was so introverted back in the days and also now i'm extroverted and very loud and proud (laughs) i realized there was a need to create a platform for folks of all diversities from toronto to come down and showcase their talents Um, The actual stem of this project um, started in my community center in Central Etobicoke. It's called Ray Under Lamp. Uh, We don't have a community center anymore because they lost funding and they're turning the community center into a um, auto shop. But yeah, that's a whole nother issue. Give us back our resources. Thank you. But um, (laughs) yeah, so this project started in Lamp for a um, Black History Month. So I was, I was um, doing my placement for social service work over there. And they're like, hey, Rare, um, do you mind um, doing something for Black History Month? And I was like, mm, I don't know what I could do, but let me try. Um, I ended up doing a talent showcase for the community. And a lot of the youth there had hidden talents that they were really shy about showcasing. And it just brought me back to when I was younger. And I was like, I used to be a little baby too. So um, I put on the show and it was very successful within Central Etobicoke. And then the pandemic hit later on, time flowed. And um, yes, after publishing this book, I was like, okay, let me bring it back. But let me try something else though. I didn't have, I'm not rich, but you know, we working on it. And um, I didn't have a lot of funding. So I actually partnered with someone online. His name is em.lord. And he actually came online. I did um, the talent showcases, but it was just like really small. I was just doing test runs. And then I was talking to him and I'm like, hey, you have equipment? And he was um, out there on the streets doing um, little gigs around on the corner of Eaton Center and things. I was like, hey, do you want to collaborate? If you bring your equipment, and I bring some talent. I'm like, I think we could create a, an online show. And he's like, oh, I'm down. Cool. So I'm like, he's like, where are we doing this? I'm, mm, I don't really have a place yet, but let me see what I could do. I scouted around the area and decided to do the first Rare Voices Talent Showcase on the rooftop of a parking garage because we ain't got no funds. So he brought the equipment. I brought the talent, we brought more talent and we let people go off the street. I had a megaphone. So I walked down the streets of Kensington Market saying, come check out the rooftop. We got talent. We got people. We got good vibes. You don't want to miss this. And screaming from the top of this um, parking garage, people actually came up. That sounds like the market. Yeah, that sounds like yeah, the, the best yeah, thing market full of art yeah. and people and love. Yeah, so I was like, ah, so perfect place. I don't know. There was like more than like 25 people on that rooftop and like so much talent. I had someone painting a jean jacket. He did a Machiavelli Versace piece live. 
We had um, singers, rappers, poets, dancers, a cipher. Like we went in and one, I just seen the beauty of collaboration and I fell in love. I was like, okay, if we can do this during a pandemic and it could be successful and amazing, let's do another test run. And this is all during summer of 2021. I was like, Oh, let me do another one. I was going to do it on the rooftop of the parking garage, but that later on after that show was done, I decided to go grab a smoothie at the house of Moses. I was kicking it in the back there. And Moses came over. He's like, hey, gal, what's up? And I'm like, oh, good. How you doing? We were just chit-chatting. And then um, I was like, hey, you want to see something I was doing earlier? He's like, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me, see, let me look at this. I just pulled up my phone. He's like, you did this? I was like, yeah, didn't you hear me screaming from the megaphone on the rooftop all across the street? I was like, I was yelling, like, all your customers buying smoothies. He's like, that was you? And I was like, yeah. He's like, oh, gosh, you got to bring that over here. And I'm like, oh, snap. And I'm like, oh, this is a free event, though. Like, we don't charge for tickets. We don't really have anything. Like, I, I, I could, but, like, I need some help. So he's like, oh, we'll give you, we'll let you use the back of um, the shop. Just drive traffic. And I was like, oh, oh I could do that. No problem. So the second show was ran in the backyard of the house of Moses and it was so successful. We ran out of chairs. People were all the way outside, like all the way in the front of the store. The store is crowded. They need more staff. The smoothies were booming. Like it was so beautiful to be able to run it twice. And then I ran it three times that summer, 2021, and it was successful three times. So now that I see like, I can create a platform for artists to like have a place to showcase themselves. I know there's a lot in Toronto actually, but I'm like more the merrier. Why not? So I decided to actually make this one of my projects that I do yearly. Um, I hope to host uh, another one in 2022 in March, in March at the house of Moses again, and just continue to do it. And if they allow me amazing, if not, there's more, we, we got the parking garage rooftop. So <laughs> I'll be there. <laughs> exactly we do what we can around here and especially come from the project we learn to use what we got even if you don't have a lot we gonna we gonna work it out some days like growing up like i didn't have a lot in my fridge and i had to get creative with this cooking i was like okay um we're doing hot dogs and rice today okay all right <laughs> it is what it is but now we're, we're, we're doing better we're doing better but back in the days we were struggling <laughs> which is kind of like a good it, it, it's a life journey uh so if people want to see your stuff where can they go see it i mean we where can they chop for your merch and books and everything that you're doing um so right now my personal website is under construction but it will be rarsworld.net um i also have rarsworld.com um but everything's being built right now just trying to maybe tap to the metaverse maybe not don't quote me maybe seeing how all of this new stuff this new futuristic world is working out um but in general uh i'll be putting my products in the house of moses or you can find me on instagram at xo.rare you can even search hashtag rares world if you ever want to find me anywhere you could google my name natalie rare chattagoon or um linkedin you can find me there definitely definitely uh, <laughs> i love linkedin i don't know um facebook to be honest i don't really use that but definitely hit me up on instagram we can find behind the scenes of that. I have some articles coming out. Um, I have someone doing an article for Caribbean newspaper, uh, a bunch of blog posts. I got to finish up a uh, couple interviews. I've done like four interviews this month. 
um, just trying to do more. Um, and currently I'm getting booked a lot to do book readings around the city. So I'm, I'm out here doing my thing. Say hi. I'm friendly. Nice. If you, ever, <laughs> if, you if you need help with metaverses and blockchain, I can, we can, I can definitely help you out. I'm, I'm, Ooh, okay. I'm pretty versatile at that. So uh, I don't mind to put you on the spot here, but you say you're a poet. So mm-hmm. can you recite us something, one of your pieces? Oh, yeah, for sure, for sure. Because we're talking about the metaverse in the future, I'm probably going to read the poem called Future. Cut. All right. Mm-mm-mm. Let's hear it. All right. <laughs> I guess I'm going to show y'all. So this is page 68 in the book. Uh, I decided to do creative direction with just phones there because that's how we primarily communicate, engage with each other nowadays. All right. And future goes like this. Sometimes I want to cry, but I laugh. These situations pass, live in the moment. Strive for victory, let sadness disappear like a mystery. Collisions of opportunities piles up and down. Months moving fast, living in technology, we enter a new generation. Millions of millennials, it's a new age. Prepare for a new day. All hail the new wave. Clout and money roam free, a world living in technology. Trick. Bones trade for faces. Last connection, I'd say. Words replacing actions, likes, and reactions. Social service working with hardly any socializing. <laughs> what have we come to? Is this the new world we were looking for? No. <laughs> it all just feels materialistic. Buy to flex. Now what's next? Glad through a text. Is that what's best? Can we buy love now too? What's next? And that was future. Nice. So people, uh, I don't, I'm an audio guy. I don't really boost the video version, but I think you should see the video version of this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It is very, very colorful. So yeah, definitely check out. uh, Thank you rare for being part of this. uh, There was, this was really nice. Uh, uh, if you need any help or anything, just, you know, w- it, always reach out. This is a platform that you can always use. Uh, we definitely appreciate it. Uh, so, guys, uh, if you have anything to say, check out Rare. Uh, check out her Instagram. Uh, check us out on social media at Black in the Maritimes, at TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, uh, and anywhere, you know, you get your social. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, whenever you get your podcasts. Uh, subscribe, leave a rate. Uh, that definitely helps us out. Uh, definitely contribute to our Patreon or PayPal. That definitely helps us a lot as well. You guys have anything else to say? Um, I will thank you for coming on. I, I will also say that I think it's so funny hearing you say about how you had only two friends because the day that we met and we discussed potentially doing this podcast and knowing each other and wanting to meet for so long, she's walking through Kensington and people are literally like, she, people know her. She's like, they're like, Oh, Hey, like yelling across the street. She's like, I'm so sorry. And I was like, your energy radiates. And I just think you're going to be extremely successful with the head that you have on your shoulders. And I'm very happy for you and everything you've done in this rebirth of rare. Um, And thank you so much for spending time with us tonight. Thank you so much for having me, y'all. Spreading my good vibes to everyone, the viewers, the listeners, the 
to everybody. <laughs> Hope you guys have a lovely day. All right. And did you want to say anything? I couldn't yeah. tell. <laughs> uh, it doesn't matter. I mean, everything you said, I mean, you said it all. Like this was such a fun uh, podcast and experience. It was enlightening. Uh, I got to have some, you know, some, some ruminations of being back in Toronto days and, it's interesting how, you know, while things change, it seems like a lot of things are the exact same. And um, yeah, just like Cropberry, Cropberry, because I don't see your name up there today. So if anyone wants to check out Hillary Cropberry, if anyone's yeah. looking for me. I'm black Clinton, in the Maritimes Davis, today, but so to tell. <laughs> Clinton Davis, anywhere you're looking for it. And uh, well, thanks for being on. Yeah. Come back, come back in the future. Yeah, I will. Y'all hit me up in the, in a year or so, and I can give you guys an update on what's going on in Rare's world. <laughs> All right. I'll get you to New Brunswick first. Yeah. We'll, we'll, oh, okay. We'll, we'll look forward um, to that for sure. I'm that here point, for it. I hope to travel Canada with my books one day. Hey, if you want to come to New Brunswick, we will definitely get you the hookup. So for sure. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Peace. Bye. Peace.